When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Francesca Stanfill about The Falcon's Eyes. Like many young women, I first encountered Eleanor of Aquitaine through Catherine Hepburn's wonderful portrayal in The Lion in Winter. The more I learned about the Queen, the more she impressed me. So naturally, when I learned of Francesca Stanfill's new novel, based on Eleanor's life, I wanted to find out more. The Falcon's Eyes opens with Eleanor and later returns to her. In the interim, she hovers in the background, a character others talk and in some cases argue about. But the novel really focuses on Isabel, a countess from a family in Provence. She is the eye of the passage that follows. Fontevraud Abbey, Loire Valley, France. Thursday, the 1st of April, Anno Domini 1204. The Queen, my Queen, died shortly before dusk. Darkness has descended with her death, and with it all the warmth of her beloved Aquitaine. Her hand rests in mine, her fingers colder than the cloister's stone. Gently I draw the sable about her neck and shoulders. It has been a frigid month, and it comforts me to know the cloak will enshroud her still. She goes to a realm of radiance, they say, yet a desolate part of me fears it will be icy, lightless. Even for her, Eleanor, Queen of England and France, the fabled Duchess of Aquitaine. And now, please join me in welcoming Francesca Stanfill. Hi, Francesca. Thank you for agreeing to chat with me today. Uh, Good morning, Carolyn, and I'm excited to talk to you about the Falcon's Eyes. You have quite a long and varied career, including several previous novels. Could you tell us a bit about yourself? Yes, um, I've had a, a <laughs> I've had a, a life with um, a lot of variety. Um, I was born in England. I grew up in New York City, and then moved to California in for high school. I went to college in the East, and then I began working immediate two weeks after college as a reporter, first for the New York, uh, for Woman's Wear Daily, and then for the New York Times Magazine. And uh, at the end of my uh, uh, career at the New York Times Magazine, I began to write novels. Uh, My first was Shadows and Light, 
the story of an obsessive love affair, and then Wakefield Hall, which, though set in New York in the late 80s, had a very 19th century feeling. But throughout all of that time, and really from the time I was uh, really a girl, I've always wanted to write an historical novel. Um, I love history and art, and I've always wanted to write a novel where I could bring a distant period to life. Um, it was the idea of marrying uh, research scholarship with the imagination and invention and a strong uh, pulsating story, which uh, drew me. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, the past has always been a familiar country to me. On your website, you mentioned that you have been fascinated by Eleanor of Aquitaine since 1969. Why is that? I I think I first became truly fascinated. I had read about her, but I think the first salvo was seeing the film The Lion in Winter in 1968, where she's portrayed by Catherine Hepburn. And the following year, I went on a family trip to France, and we visited the Abbey, Fontevraud, in the Loire Valley in central France, where she retired. She spent the last years of her life, which she patronized throughout her life, and where uh, her tomb lies. And her tomb is full of mystery. It's a, it's a wonderful design. She probably designed it herself with her eye to her posthumous reputation. And she's depicted reading an open book. And I was fascinated by that. Um, and after seeing Fontevraud, uh, I began to read more about her. And um, what I learned just continued to uh, pique my curiosity. I, 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 she was the wife of two kings, the mother of two kings, and one of the great power players of the uh, extraordinary 12th century. I think the other, idea, the other idea that fascinated me was that her life actually really spanned the entire century. She died in 1204, so she was 82 when she died which is extraordinary in its own right, and made her something of a freak of nature. Uh, she was a, I, and I, at, beyond that, I would say, the more I read about Eleanor, the more I was in awe of her life. Uh, she was a patron of the arts. Um, and she uh, traveled widely. She had an, clearly an enormous sense of adventure. And she exemplified many qualities I think I admire. She was resilient. She was strategic in her thinking. Um, she was indomitable. Uh, of course, at times she was ruthless, but she had to be in order to survive. Eleanor is certainly a character in The Falcon's Eyes. We see her at the beginning uh, as she has just died, and we meet her uh, in, as a character later on. But the main story is told from the viewpoint of Isabel, who is fictional, rather, rather than Eleanor herself. What made you decide to use that different point of view? Well, I... When I began, when I really embarked on writing the novel, was intent on writing it, um, I toyed with the idea of writing it from Eleanor's point of view, but I pretty quickly discarded that. I didn't want to see her from just from her point of view. I wanted to see her shot from all angles. And the reason why I felt so strongly about that was this. She was notorious even in her own time. She was famous. She was a famous heiress. She then became Queen of France, then Queen of England. And she uh, 
ruffled a lot of feathers. There were people who reviled her and many others who revered her. I wanted to see her from all of those angles and all of her complexity. And for that, I would have to do it from another point of view, from uh, the point of view of someone who knew her well, who was with her, and perhaps even uh, from the point of view of a young woman to whom Eleanor had been a mentor. And that, of course, is my heroine, Isabel. And Isabel is with her. Isabel is with her uh, the moment uh, when she dies in that first scene. Introduce us to Isabel. What is she like as a personality? Well, she's a, a rebel like Eleanor, which partly explains why she's drawn to her. She is um, intensely curious, adventuresome. She loves learning. Um, she uh, is drawn to stories, to invention. Uh, one of her credos is, whenever you are in despair, invent. But I think she admires Eleanor most of all because she sees in Eleanor this woman who was fearless, who made her own way in life, who made her own rules, who, who was not controlled by others, and who was uh, really quite extraordinary. I think the in in the early days of when when Isabella is a girl, she is fascinated by Eleanor partly because she hears about the Queen from her mother, and her mother, who is a very cold or chilling character, uh, thinks of Eleanor as the devil incarnate. And of course, Isabel, as a teenager, becomes even more fascinated by the Queen because of that. Indeed, Isabel is not entirely comfortable even within her own family, although she does get along pretty well with her grandfather and her brother. What can you tell us about uh, the members of her family and her relationship with them? Well, no one in her family understands her, really, except her slightly older brother, Arnaud, whom she adores, and her grandfather. Uh, her mother and sister find her an unruly nuisance. Her oldest brother, Guy, who is something of a social climber, merely tolerates her. And whenever she can, Isabel escapes to the magical world of her grandfather's library. And he is her kindred spirit, really. He teaches her to read and write. And most of all, he values her thoughts, her mind, her imagination. Uh, the rest of the family really see Isabel as so many young medieval women were seen as a commodity to be bartered. Her parents, in particular, are very glad when uh, Gerard de Mortagne accepts Isabel as his wife. Um, it's expected, of course, that a young noblewoman living in the 12th century will marry. But what makes uh, Gerard, in her parents' eyes, the ideal husband for Isabel? Well, first of all, he is rich. And Isabel's family, though it is of ancient lineage, has a noble name, uh, is not rich. And um, it chafes Isabel's mother, particularly, that they do not have the means for a luxurious life. Uh, she, you can feel within this mother that she sort of has her nose pressed against the glass. So he's rich and can provide for her daughter. And, um, of course, that, that is the uh, number one attraction. He's willing to be wed to her, which her mother uh, which thrills her mother because the mother and to some extent the father fear that no one would want Isabel because she's uh, can be disobedient. Um, she has a mind of her own. And so um, this is a way for, for them to secure her future. 
And uh, quite honestly, really, for them to get rid of it, Isabel, uh, they, she really had no other um, options in life except perhaps to go to, a con- to, to an abbey. But even there, the family didn't really have the money to contribute to an abbey that would support her. Yes, I think it's not generally understood that in the Middle Ages in particular, you couldn't just join an abbey. You had to actually um, have the equivalent of a dowry even to become a nun. Exactly, exactly. And, and um, uh, Isabel's family was not in that position when Isabel first gets to Ravenur uh, and meets her new husband, um, she's quite pleasantly surprised at first. Um, what can you tell us about this early stage in her relationship? Well, she is dazzled by the luxury of Chateau Ravenur. She's come from a manor house in the south of France, in Provence, um, which um, is, is, is a very simple place. Um, there's a kind of stinginess about it when it's later described in the novel. It's a very, it's a feeling of people who've made, it has rooms which I think I write have, are, are reflect um, the owners who have made a great accommodation with life. Whereas Chateau Ravignol is full of luxuries. The, uh, the, the food is copious. Uh, there are expensive spices. Uh, the walls are hung with silk tapestries. Um, and most of all, it is very worldly. It's a reflection of Gerard's travels, of his entrancement with East, with the East, with the Holy Land, with all of the luxuries of, of the world that it is, he has seen in his travels. And um, so that at first is, is quite seductive. It is also a very stratified world, rather formal. There is a certain rigidity about it. Um, and of all of the aspects of Chateau Ravignol, perhaps which fascinates Isabel the most, I would say I would single out the muse, uh, the scene where Gerard, who is an obsessive, uh, who is obsessed with falconry, shows her his muse and his falcons, um, is among my favorite moments in the book. And um, uh, the, the, these falcons, which are almost really part of the household, and um, are very precious to Gerard, are a crucial element in the story. Yes, they really are. Um, and one of the elements for, of the story is that Isabel makes friends, uh, some of whom Gerard consider, considers inappropriate. Uh, one of them is Eglantine and also Galleon, who in turn, you know, eventually becomes involved with the Falcons. So what draws Isabel to these people whom her husband doesn't approve of? Uh, they are comforting to her. She's lonely. Imagine this young woman, 17, coming to marry a man she's never met, going from a simple manor house to this grand place, and and to a husband who is not who who is distant. He's fascinating. He's powerful, but he's rather distant and hard to read. So Eglantine, uh, who is a sweet slightly mysterious young woman, her servant, becomes her friend, her confidant. And um, and then others, like Galeon, the, the falconer, whom, who, whom Isabel finds at once a very touching figure because he, he's come from uh, England. He's been brought over um, as a slave and, and sort of adopted by Gerard, 
to work in the stables, but dreams of becoming a falcon, uh, a, um, a master falconer. So um, there's a kind of, Isabel has a sympathy and, and a compassion for these two. And of course, they become friends. And, and that becomes an issue in her marriage to Gerard, because Gerard does not think it is appropriate for the lady of the household to become close to the servants. He feels that they are servants and that they must remain so. And I would say that the when Isabel begins to realize this and when he begins to bear down on her because of this, uh, this be- begins uh, a new and slightly uh, disturbing part of her marriage. A more suitable friend from Gerard's perspective, uh, if only for a while, is Lady Fastrada. Um, I loved Lady Fastrada. She's a wonderful character. Tell us about her. Lady Fastrada is a marvelously flamboyant, stylish character who is another to a rule breaker in a way, or at least unconventional in her thinking. And she comes to Ravenor with her husband, Hugh, for a, a, the hunt. And uh, Gerard is very uh, eager to curry her favor because she's from, an, they are very important, uh, noble people from uh, Troyes, uh, Hugh is another power player uh, with the court, and um, uh, since they are of, of ancient lineage, uh, Gerard is very, very eager to be accepted by them. And at first, he promotes the friendship with Pastrada, uh, between Pastrada and Isabel, but then I think becomes slightly wary of her because Frustrata is also, she's stylish, she's witty, but she's also something of an agent provocateur. She talks to Isabel about, for example, um, having bearing children. She says that she has sons, but she, as her life progressed, she did not want to be ruled by what she calls the tyranny of conception. She introduces the idea, ideas to Isabel about uh, perhaps not living this way, perhaps even about controlling her own body. By um, uh, Pastrada says, you know, she learned that if she became very thin and uh, she, at a certain point she would not become pregnant. And all of this is rather shocking to Isabel. But she's also a very warm, warm woman and listens to Isabel and is curious about her. And she also tells Isabel about her sister, she has a sister, who, a rather unlikely sister, because Bastrada, who is so worldly, so flamboyant, has a sister who is a nun, Clementia. And Clementia is, is a nun at the Abbey of Pontrevaux. And uh, she becomes, we are introduced to her later, and she is a very, very important figure in the story. She is indeed. And of course, um, I mean, there's a present-day relevance to this uh, this, uh, I'm sure Gerard would see it as undermining of the central purpose of marriage, because in the Middle Ages, that was really the only reason to be married, was to have children. Yes, and, and, and the idea, I, I, I really want to emphasize that it is part, one of, one of the themes of the book is control, various methods of control, you know, whether it's the husband over the wife, the falconer over the falcon, um, posthumous control, but also the issue of control over one's body as a young woman. This is a very, very important 
issue in the book for Isabel, and I did a great deal of research about what was thought of then as methods of contraception and theories about conception, theories about, you know, what sex child you were going to have and all of this. And um, the details in the book all came from treatises, 12th century treatises, which were used at the time. Some of them, of course, as we read them, and uh, these these theories, which are, are, are presented by the healer and Thusis in the book, seem really quite wacky. But um, uh, even then, women were striving to understand these issues and to, to grapple with them. It's a very important element of the story. Let's go back to the falcons for a second. What do the falcon's eyes symbolize for you? Well, the falcon's eyes change. The gaze changes um, according to circumstances and according to the perception of the viewer. And I think that's true. Uh, I think it's an element of complexity in the book, whether it uh, has to do with the falcons or with the objects in the book or with, you know, um, even the rooms in the book, which change according to who sees them and when, and what is what is associated with them. So the falcon's eyes are sometimes menacing, sometimes welcoming, sometimes they sometimes the gaze comes as a warning. Um, and as I the falcon him the falcons themselves, as I said, really uh, do kind of encompass this wider theme of control and also the con- of control and also the theme of freedom. Um, you know, the falcons are trained and they can obey and they are meant to obey, but they can also decide at their own will, with their own will, when they want to be free and never return. And when Isabel is first introduced, for example, to Gerard's falcons, he also shows her his dove. And at the end of that scene, he says, ah, you are my dove. Well, as the book progresses, that is a question. Is Isabel really a dove or is she, in fact, a falcon with a will of its own? We're going to skip over uh, what happens with the marriage because we don't want to give away spoilers. Uh, you've mentioned Clementia and Fontevraud and if Isabel eventually does find her way to Fontevraud. What is it about this particular convent that draws her and makes her want to live there? She has heard about it, uh, first of all, uh, and its affiliation with the Queen, with Queen Eleanor. She knows that Eleanor uh, patronized uh, Fontevraud. She has heard that it's, it's an unusual abbey because it's run by the abbess. It's a dual-sex abbey. There are monks in one part and then the, the nuns in the other. But it is the abbess who rules, and that was according to the dictates of its founder, Robert Abrissel, in the early 12th century. Uh, she also knows that there are learned noble women who live there, women who have had worldly experience and who are um, really, in effect, managers. That was also, one of the fascinating aspects to me in learning about Fontevraud that the that the founder or Abrissel was quite determined that the women in charge be women who had had experience in the world that they be widows 
that they be um, capable women. Um, there were always royal affiliations with Fondreville. It was wealthy. Uh, it had been uh, patronized by Eleanor's family, as I said, and also by Henry II's family, the Plantagenets. So it was. It had that aura of glamour, I suppose, to Isabel, and uh, who is a romantic. And I think she does um, become fascinated by it, partly because of that. And also because she, uh, initially because of that, and then even more fascinated, she becomes even more fascinated when she learns that Castrata's sister, Clementia, is a nun there. She's just settling in to Fontevraud when, uh, again, circumstances uh, lead her in a different direction. And she ends up boarding a ship to England, which is where Queen Eleanor uh, enters the novel, really, as a first, <laughs> as a living person. Uh, where is the Queen at this point in her life, and why is she there? Uh, the Queen is under house arrest in southern England, between Salisbury and Windsor. We're not entirely sure, you know, what where exactly she was, but it, she was in in that in that region. Um, she had been thrown in house arrest, captured by Henry II in 1173. I'll just backtrack a moment and explain. <clears throat> in 1173, uh, in the early 1170s, uh, Eleanor and her sons, uh, impatient with Henry and his need to control and his, um, and his ruthlessness um, incited a rebellion against him. And Eleanor was very much blamed uh, for having, um, for having um, sided with her sons against their father. That was really unheard of. And in 1173, she was captured and she knew and sent over the channel to England. She remained under house arrest for 16 years. And it is during that time when Isabel meets her. So she is, we do meet her in the middle of the novel in England. In the first part of the novel, Eleanor sort of hovers over the book in much the way that Rebecca hovers over the Daphne du Maurier novel. We hear about her from all points of view. And then finally, in in the middle, we meet her in England. And uh, Isabel has been sent as a companion to her as, um, as, as it appears in history, several young women from Fontevraud were. So uh, here, I, I always was fascinated to imagine Eleanor at this time because I thought of this woman who had traveled, who had been on the Second Crusade, who had negotiated with kings and who had really been, as I said earlier, such a power player. And then I thought of her for 16 years under house arrest in a court in exile with every move watched by her wary husband. And, um, and that is exactly the time, of course, when Isabel finally meets her. And that's also the time, uh, the setting of Lion and Winter is during that period of imprisonment exactly. as well. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eleanor and Isabel hit it off almost right away. What draws them together? They're drawn together, I think, by their spirits, by their minds, by their curiosity. Uh, and I think they recognize in each other um, a kind of, they have a complicity of spirit. They are both intelligent. Uh, they are both in unconventional. Um, when Eleanor first meets Isabel, she challenges her. She puts her 
Um, she's not put her at her ease at all. She tests her, and Isabel comes through that test. However nervous Isabel is, imagine this young woman being brought to this uh, these chambers in this in this uh, formidable castle in England, being brought to this great queen who sits in her, you know, sort of improvised throne. Um, and they're drawn together by their love of learning and by stories. And I think it's partly um, uh, through the books that Eleanor reads, that, that they read together, the stories of Eleanor's life that she begins to tell Isabel, which, of course, fascinate her. Um, those are all the things that draw them together. And Isabel, to a great extent, also becomes something of a surrogate daughter to her. Uh, Eleanor is isolated. She does not see her children, her own daughters, are across the channel. Her daughter Matilda in uh, Saxony, her daughter Leonora in Spain, her other daughter, her youngest daughter, perhaps her favorite, Joanna in Sicily. So in a way, Isabel becomes that substitute daughter for her. Um, and something of a mother figure, albeit a formidable mother figure. <laughs> <laughs> But not as formidable as Isabel's own mother. In many ways. No, not as formidable as Isabel's own mother, who, who would be right up there, I think, with Lady Macbeth in terms of the uh, warmth department. <laughs> yeah, she definitely would be. <laughs> <laughs> this is a long novel, though it doesn't feel long, and you must have done an absolute ton of research. Although, again, it's it folds right into the story so I'm very impressed by that before we close uh, have I left anything out that you would like listeners to hear about characters plot points settings something that's particularly dear to you well I, I want to emphasize that it is a big tapestry with a wide range of characters with servants noble women nuns um, I also you know there are certain aspects I'd also like to mention one is the idea, a very important theme of the book, the idea of women working together and the power of friendships among women. Um, and it is a story with, yes, with that I think brings history to life. Um, uh, and, and, and this, you know, this period to life, this brilliant century to life, Eleanor to life. But it is also a story that I think, um, derives its power because it is one of great feeling and emotion. And uh, although many have emphasized the depiction of the relationship, the friendship, the complicity between Isabel and Eleanor, um, I also want to emphasize that um, what gives the story its suspense and its drama is Isabel's need not only to outwit but also to escape the vengeance of, of someone she has crossed. And that really lies at the core of the Falcon's Eyes. Um, I won't tell you who that person is. Uh, <laughs> you'll have to read the Falcon's Eyes to find out. Yes, I mean, there's so many layers to the story um, that we can't go into because they would give away other things. But uh, Isabel is not the only person who has to worry about the um, the vengeance of that particular character. Yes. Um, and as I say, it's, it's, a, it's a complex book with this, um, a big tapestry, the upstairs, downstairs, the story of families, 
It's a, a story of a marriage. Um, most of all, I hope it will really transport the readers into this other world and make it come alive for them. This book has just come out. Are you already working on something new? I am. I'm working on a novel set in the late 19th century, another brilliant century, complex in time, um, and uh, with a very different kind of narrator, um, a book really that will focus on status, money, self-invention, and I think will be a, a rather, perhaps a dark, mysterious book with a kind of Hitchcockian feeling. That's a whole other research program you've got yes. there. <laughs> I love research. Do you? <laughs> I love research, and I, lo- and I love um, the mix of research and the, you know, the magic of a story, of invention. Yes, I must admit, I love research, too. But how do you decide what to keep in and what to leave out? Uh, it's very hard. I, part of it is just instinct. Part of it is just at a certain point you have to say no enough because research is very seductive. If you love to learn, as I do, you could go on and on forever. And um, it's it, it's a challenge for me because I love history. I love details. I love art. I'm very visual. I mean, Falcon's Eyes is full of art and objects and all the things of rooms and all the things that bring a period to life. Not only ideas, not only personalities, but the whole mise-en-scene. So it can be seductive, but at a certain point, you do really have to say, okay, now I've just got to get to it. And um, another thing that works is when your agent calls and says, enough is enough, you've got to get going. (laughs) That always helps, right? (laughs) Yes, that helps. (laughs) Well, I want readers and listeners to hear that uh, you really did a wonderful job. And although the research has to be there, because otherwise you couldn't come up with all those details, it really is a wonderful read. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Francesca. Thank you, Carolyn, very, very much. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Francesca Stanfill about The Falcon's Eyes. Find out more about her at francescastanfillauthor.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.